Hello, and welcome to the latest ClearBridge podcast. This is Jeff Schulze, CFA Investment Strategist at ClearBridge Investments, and I'm excited to welcome back Michael Kagan, Portfolio Manager for the ClearBridge Appreciation Strategy. Mike last joined us in the booth in April of 2017 when market volatility was quite tame. Obviously, a lot has changed on the volatility front since then, and we'll come back to that in just a minute. But Mike, how are you doing today? I'm doing very well. How are you? Doing good. Good to be here. Mike has 33 years of investment industry experience and has been co-managing the appreciation strategy since 2009. This strategy looks to capture as much of the upside as possible in good markets, and it has also always focused on managing risk to limit downside exposure in bad markets. And the topic of today's podcast is the advantage of active management in volatile markets. Clearbridge is a global equity manager with $140 billion in assets under management, committed to delivering long-term results through authentic active management. Clearbridge tailors our strategies to meet three primary client objectives in our areas of proven expertise, high active share, income solutions, and low volatility. We integrate ESG considerations into our fundamental research process across all strategies. So 18 months, yes, it has been quite a long time since I've had you in the booth here. Um, I would say volatility is probably the number one thing that has changed. If you think about back to 2017, the biggest drawdown that we saw that year is 3%, and now we've already had two 10% corrections this year. So I guess the question that a lot of listeners are going to be interested in is, is this new normal? Uh, is this going to be the new normal for volatility going forward? What are your thoughts? Well, I would argue that volatility the last couple of years has actually been extraordinarily low, and the volatility that we've been seeing the last couple of months is maybe normal. So we've been spoiled as exactly. investors. Okay. Uh, well, that's not uncommon. As you get later and later in a market cycle, volatility tends to increase as uh, the Fed, our central banks, continue to tighten policy. But as an active manager and a conservative portfolio manager at that, how do you use this volatility um, to, to help the participants in your portfolios? So there's two things. The first is that there are certain companies whose earnings are unusually robust in recessions and when things slow down. And so those companies tend to outperform when the market gets messy, whether it's a recession or whether it's just simply a drawdown in an up market. And that is what we focus on as portfolio managers, and that's what our portfolio is made up of. And so we tend to do very well. We tend to protect very nicely when the market gets messy and volatility rises. The other thing about volatility is when it goes up, it gives us opportunities to buy companies that uh, maybe we missed. Um, and so uh, companies... Like the valuations got away from you, it went up too high, and then you're just waiting patiently for an opportunity which volatility will bring about for you? Yeah, so we, Scott and I always have a list of names that we want to buy, but when the market's going up in our face every day, it's not so easy to buy them. And, and so when things get messy, it gives us an opportunity. So, for example, Amazon is a company which we've owned in the past but have not owned the last three years because we were concerned about their heavy investments in areas like logistics and in Whole Foods where the returns are much lower than their core business. Of course. Historically, when you invest in lower return businesses, your stock doesn't do so well. We were wrong by Amazon. And in fact, they've started to see returns uh, rise because uh, the advertising market is doing very well for them. So it, it used to be that advertising, you thought of Google and Facebook. Now Amazon uh, starts to um, they get paid huh. um, for the position on the page. 
Very interesting because you don't think of advertising with Amazon. So when I'm searching a specific product or something along those lines, whoever wants to be listed first, we'll give them you know some sort of fee and hopefully get that buyer to buy their product from that vendor. Exactly, as with Google. Wow. And so that is, they are now 5% of the entire advertising market. 5%. And so that is enough to really move the needle for Amazon. That's very interesting. Um, maybe talk to me about a, a stock also that um, has those defensive characteristics that you traditionally seen that has helped you navigate some of this volatility you've seen recently. So uh, one area that's very defensive in downturns is the coatings industry. And an old favorite of ours is PPG, uh, the paint company. Okay. And the reason that paint does so well in a downturn is that volumes don't change very much for them. In a really hot market, they grow a couple of 3%. And when things are really bad, GDP's down a couple of percent, their volumes fall maybe 1%. Now, would that be because people, instead of remodeling their house, it's just easier to paint it to give it a different feel or... It's just because paint's a really mature market, so volumes don't change all that much. Okay. The the maintenance is really the big fundamental demand grower. New housing, new buildings don't really affect stuff very much because the volume of buildings that are out there is so large relative to the amount of volume of buildings that are new isn't so. So really, so it's a it's a maintenance market rather than a, a growth market. So in any event, so. Um, what happens is that volumes don't really affect their earnings very much. What really drive their earnings are margins, and margins are driven by raw materials. Okay. When the economy is really strong and oil prices are, are up an awful lot, then they see an awful lot of pressure. And in the last couple of years, PPG has had 500 basis points of operating margin pressure from raw materials. Well, oil prices are down from $90 to 50 in two months. And 35% pullback, yeah. And you better believe that PPG is going to see it, and it's going to help their margins a lot. And so it's one of the companies that we think are going to have surprisingly strong earnings per share in the next year. And we think it's a great opportunity. And speaking about earnings per share, right, when we talked 18 months ago in, in 2017, you cited the potential acceleration for EPS or earnings per share growth, just broadly speaking with the S&P 500 because of tax policy and, and further market gains. Obviously, fast forward to today, this has largely come to pass. So where are we right now? Like, what's what's next for earnings? Have they obviously peaked at this point? Well, we think it's likely that GDP growth has peaked, but I want to emphasize the word growth there. So growth, the 4% that we saw in the first half of the year, is probably going to slow. Mm-hmm. The Fed has been tightening monetary policy for 18 months. They've been shrinking their balance sheet. Uh, and by the way, we think that the size of the balance sheet and the size of the money supply are much more important for the economy than the raw rates are. And so the fact that they've been shrinking and that money is tighter is going to slow the market. And we're beginning to see some effect of that. And just to kind of go off topic here, do you think the Fed is making a mistake by doing a double tightening, i.e. bringing down their balance sheet and pulling rates up on the short end? I mean, they're pulling two levers at the same time, that which they traditionally have never done before. No, actually, I think late in the cycle, they often do it together. Okay. Uh, but rates were very low. So we had negative real rates for a long time, and even though we've had a lot of rate increases, we're only probably at neutral right now. So I don't think that the rate policy, we were just taking an extraordinarily low policy and, and, and bringing it back to normal. And so there's a lot of room to increase, and one could argue that if the Fed wants to have weapons when it needs to slow the economy, that uh, actually rates should go up a bit more from here. Well, I think the if you look historically, when the Fed starts to cut rates because we're going into a recession, they usually cut rates by 500 basis points. Uh, with the Fed funds rate now we're close to 3%, we certainly need a couple more to, to have that ammunition. And then similarly on the balance sheet, the balance sheet increase that we saw 
this past cycle was extraordinary, unprecedented. And so it's necessary for the Fed to go and shrink their balance sheet. I think actually they've been doing it at a pretty modest pace. Um, I think we're up to 50 billion per month at this point. Yeah. And so I I don't want to be painting a big negative picture. What I want to emphasize is that 4% growth is very hard when rates are now neutral rather than negative and when the Fed is shrinking its balance sheet and and tightening monetary policy. So I think that GDP growth at 2% is an awful lot more likely than 4% is. But, but earnings won't peak at this point. You still think that there's obviously some some upside for earnings. I think consensus has earnings next year at 8 or 9% year over year. Do you, do you think that's achievable? Yeah, I think that that's fine. So it's more the earnings growth is slowing rather than earnings are slowing. Yeah, I think there's a misconception out there. In fact, if you go back to the 1950s, the mid-1950s, uh, we've had 17 earnings peaks, and you haven't seen a recession on average for another 34 and a half months. So I think... People are scared of late cycle concerns and peak earnings, but just because we've had so robust earnings this time around doesn't mean that the economy has to roll over and the stock market along with it. Or similarly, one of the things that people look at is the shape of the yield curve. And historically, when the yield curve is inverted, you have a risk of a recession. But it takes it – you have to have long rates below short rates for that to happen. The period where the yield curve is pretty narrow – where the, but but positive it's actually historically been a really good time for the market and also for earnings and we're in that sweet spot right now we are indeed and you know i think december's hike is a foregone conclusion it's already priced in the market the fed would obviously take that opportunity but given powell's comments yesterday uh we may be in for a dovish surprise maybe in march or, or june of this year well i think the thing that surprised me about the recent numbers economically are that the jobless claims have begun to tick up and that could be an artifact of Thanksgiving and an artifact of uh, the hurricanes that we had. So we'll see. But uh, that's surprising because usually that's a lagging indicator. Usually when the jobless claims are, are rising, you've already had a material slowing that's occurred. So I'm surprised by that. Well, you, you, you've had seen some weakness across a number of different economic data points, right? Housing is uh, having a slow spot right here. Um, you're seeing it in new constructions, existing home sales, you're seeing some weakness in prices, you're seeing some weakness in autos. Um, but I would say that this is all just the lagged effect of Fed tightening that's been going on over the course of the last couple of years. It's a normal part of the economic cycle. I agree. And it's also probably uh, related to some concerns about trade. Trade. Okay. That's the uh, the million-dollar question, or should I say trillion-dollar question. Uh, what's going to happen on the trade front? And, you know, we're having this podcast on Thursday. Uh, President Xi and President Trump are due to meet at the G20 in Argentina over the weekend and have dinner. Um, that's just one of a myriad of concerns that investors have right now. Um, do you think that we'll get some progress on the trade front? Or do you think that this is going to disrupt the market for the next couple of months or quarters? I think that the trade negotiations between the United States and China are tricky. And the reason is that China cares about face. And so I think that they may be willing to have some settlement, but they have to be able to go and look to their people like they're strong. And uh, President Trump likes loud, glaring headlines. And as we saw with NAFTA, there was an awful lot of headline, an awful lot of storm and fury there, but not an awful lot of change in the actual agreement that was made. Some minor changes. Some minor changes, but but when it really comes down to it, I don't really think it affects that much. Right. It, there was a lot more noise than there was actual change. And so the concern that I have is that, therefore, that the way that the Chinese negotiate and the way that President Trump negotiates is different, and it's rife for problems. 
And in particular, what we've seen so far is that there's been a tendency to have this tit-for-tat where the president comes out with some kind of punishment, some kind of a threat, and the Chinese respond in kind. And because they're negotiating different ways, I worry that that tit-for-tat can get out of control. But isn't there a natural limit to how far the Chinese can go tit-for-tat for us, right? We've we've done uh, tariffs on the first $50 billion of goods that went into place. We've done tariffs on the next $200 billion. We have another $267 billion worth of goods we could put tariffs on when the Chinese only import, what, about $140 billion from us. So is there a, a logical limit to how far they can push the envelope with us? Perhaps on tariffs, but not perhaps on non-tariff items. So I think like red tape with uh, U.S. companies doing business there? Or or they, for example, are the 90% maker in the world of rare earth metals, which are necessary for manufacturing semiconductors and a lot of electronics and also for our military production. And if they say, okay, we're not going to export that stuff to you, then the United States has got a problem. So there's the risk in here that if things get out of control, if there's, a, if there's this rising, as I say, tit for tat, um, that things can get very bad. So we have to hope that that doesn't happen. Do, do you have expectations? I mean, market expectations right now are extremely low for this weekend's summit between our, our two leaders. Do you, you feel that there is the potential for a positive surprise? Well, I was actually pretty copacetic about the market reaction coming into the week because I thought actually that expectations were very low. I think expectations have risen and people are kind of feeling like things are probably going to be okay. So that actually sets the risk level higher for the market. Well, we will, we'll see. I mean, there was a, a nice rally yesterday um, after Powell's perceived dovish comments and then obviously the dovish comments coming out of the administration on the hopes for a trade deal. Um, the one let, thing oh. – let, let me also add though, which is I think that regardless of what happens this weekend, the trade issue between the United States and China is not going away because the Chinese have clearly been misbehaving. They clearly have misappropriated – uh, IP. They clearly um, are spying on the United States. The spy chip thing that came out, I think, is real. You're seeing reactions on the part of the United States and its allies. Bipartisan reactions. Well, yes, and there's bipartisan support for uh, a reaction on the part of the United States. But you're seeing things, for example, like uh, New Zealand on Monday announced that they weren't going to be buying telecommunications equipment from Huawei. I think it's quite likely that the Europeans are going to repeat that. Uh, it's quite possible that the United States government will stop buying any electronics that are manufactured in China because of the spy chip, and allies may do the very same thing. It's quite possible that electronics manufacturing and assembly, which is mostly in China right now, may move elsewhere. And these types of things are going to put an awful lot of pressure on the Chinese to respond to the United States. So there, this issue here, even if this weekend goes okay, is more of a deferral than it is a resolution. I, you know, I'm of the opinion that uh, Trump, President Trump has a six-month window here. To, he could press his bets. Obviously, um, the $200 billion worth of goods, that has a 10% tariff. There's no deal. That goes up to 25% on January 1. I think he has the room, the wiggle room, to press his bets at this point. Um, but if you get to the middle part of 2019, you get to the later part of 2019, the markets react to this, the economy starts to weaken – I find it hard to believe that it's going to keep blindly moving forward in the in leading up to the re-election bid in 2020. So I do believe that there's a timeline here that a trade deal will be forged, but I'm not as optimistic in the near term that we're going to be able to, to try to come to some sort of agreement. And I think also, 
I, I mentioned that the president likes headlines. There was a news story earlier this week that uh, the Fed was jawboning the uh, Fed about not raising rates and had made a suggestion to Treasury Secretary Mnuchin that instead what he should do is he should encourage the Fed to uh, just simply tighten their balance sheet instead. Well, I believe that rates are much less impactful on the market, on the economy, than is uh, monetary policy. And so if what he wants is that the stock market is going to do well uh, and therefore the Fed shouldn't raise rates, but instead they should they should tighten their balance sheet more, he's got it exactly wrong. Right, right. Um, all right, so we talked about trade. We talked about the Fed. Any other high-level risks? Any other fears that uh, that has you up at night? What about inflation? I mean, what, we had the highest wage growth print of the cycle at 3.1% last month. Um, but oil prices, as we talked about, are down 35%. So is inflation under wraps? Is it tame for the time being? I think inflation is a non-issue. The, the biggest macro factor that worries me, and this is related to the trade thing, is the U.S. dollar. Okay. Because the U.S. dollar continuing to rise, especially if the Chinese respond by allowing the yuan to trade below seven, could have real implications for other emerging markets. And and they've held the line there. It's below seven, right? So they've stepped into the markets uh, when they've gotten close. But your fear is that if this continues to escalate, that they'll they'll be willing to let that go. The dollar strengthens, and then all of the stress, all the fear that we had earlier this year from an emerging market perspective, comes right back to the forefront. Yes, exactly. Yeah, uh, you know, the dollar strength, uh, it seems like it's abated here recently. It'll be interesting to see if that continues to transpire uh, in the new year. Um, I, I do believe that the response out of Powell and the Fed yesterday, the, the dovish, more dovish remarks, uh, will take a little bit of that pressure off. But you, you certainly do have that capability of the dollar coming right back to the forefront. And if you look at the trade-weighted dollar, it's the yuan is 22% of that trade-weighted dollar. It's a very big portion of it. So if I kind of summarize, I'm not negative on the economy. I think that the economy is going to continue to grow. I think that we're not due for a recession yet, but I do think that there's one hanging out there. Um, and we do have to watch what happens between the U.S. and, and China because it's a risk. What about leverage? You know, this is the last risk I'm going to bring up. Are you concerned about corporate leverage? I mean, it's been rising. Um, some people could say that it's been the responsible thing to do is take out debt at low levels, buy back your stock because the book would say that your stock was cheap relative to 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 fixed income. Does leverage levels at this point concern you? Do you think it's going to be an issue? I don't think it's gotten that bad for the system yet. But if the stock market continues to be strong and those repurchases and, and the levering up continues, then yes, it would be. So we're at the point that it's not an issue, but if bad behavior continues for the next couple of years, it, it will likely come to the forefront. Agreed. Okay. Well, uh, obviously, this pullback has uh, created several opportunities in the market. Um, you highlighted Amazon as, as one of those opportunities. Um, but as you move later in the cycle – Certain opportunities or sectors come into favor. Um, is there anything that you're finding really attractive at this point? Yeah, one of those sectors that's been a real go-to sector for the appreciation portfolio has been property and casualty insurance. And the catastrophes that we've had the last couple of years, so the, um, the hurricanes and the fires in California have really created, uh, caused a lot of damage, enough that the property casualty companies are beginning to see a shortage of capital. And whenever they see a shortage capital, they know they have to raise prices. That's called the hard market. Okay. And that's when these stocks work great. 
They also happen to be terrific stocks in a recession because when interest rates go down, they actually benefit as opposed to most insurance companies like life insurance companies who actually need rising rates to do well or banks which need rising rates to do well. And why when rates go down do they benefit? Uh, it just has to do with the, um, the, the, the value of their portfolio. Oh, so the, the bonds that they hold go up in value, and obviously that's creative to— So it means that they have more capital, so they're able to go and pay off the—and uh, so, so basically, so that you have a, a situation in a recession where if they have a hard market and you have, um, and you have lower interest rates, then these companies really outperform. And the stocks have underperformed in the last year or two because it was getting to be a soft market. Right. So we see some opportunities, and uh, Travelers has always been a go-to name for us. We just love them. They're a terrific, high-quality company. And so that would be a name that would do very well in a recession or an economic slowdown. And I would imagine that, um, as you talked about with paints, it's relatively inelastic, right? I mean, uh, you're going to need your insurance for your car, your house, what have you. Um, no matter whether you're having a recession or, or not having a recession. Exactly. You don't buy insurance because you want to buy insurance. You buy insurance because you're told that you have to. <laughs> and you don't want to run the risk of uh, what would happen if a, a bad event came to play. Or you may not have a choice. Right. Um, any other opportunities? Any other specific stocks that uh, that well, scream this is opportunistic for us? Yeah, one other company that we've been buying is Cisco. Okay. And that is, uh, there's two things going on. There are three things going on. The first is that there's a technological change here, which is you've got 5G coming, and they're going to be a big beneficiary. There's going to be a lot more telecommunications equipment that's going to be purchased for that. The second is that they're a China play. So if the United States doesn't buy Huawei equipment, it's going to be buying stuff from U.S. manufacturers like Cisco and ANET. And likely given all the defense issues, uh, security issues, um, even if a trade deal comes to fruition, Cisco might be the winner no matter what, whether there's a deal or there, there's not a deal. I agree. Now, it's been a risk on market, right? This has been growth-driven um, really since the beginning of 2017. Where are we headed now? Um, and maybe if you can share with the viewers what your outlook is for 2019 and and how your active approach to managing volatility can, can help make a difference to the bottom line. So we're not looking for a recession, but we do think that a recession is on the horizon. And so it's time to begin to play defense in your portfolio. Now, that doesn't mean you can't own any of the FANG stocks. Some of them are going to make sense. I do think that you can't just blindly buy them anymore. They have, they have their challenges, and so you've got to watch fundamentals, and you've got to watch valuation. And so what you want to do is own companies that you're going to want to own for the long term. And that's the type of name that we own in, in the appreciation portfolio. So I think basically the appreciation portfolio in some ways is designed for the current type of environment, one where... Uh, if the market goes up modestly, then we're going to participate. And if we have a recession and you need the defense, then the type of names that we have in the portfolio are going to tend to protect you when the market gets messy. Well, and I would imagine participants would start to sniff out the recession potentially coming. They want to go to these quality names, these these bulletproof business models that you talk about that don't have a lot of variability in their earnings stream, um, which is the exact reason why you know you can manage volatility and give more positive expectations versus something like a, a pure growth play. Yes, agreed. Yeah, quality typically does outperform late cycle. Um, obviously, margins are a big component of that. Recessions will tend to uh, erode margins quite a bit. 
Um, you said you see a recession on the horizon. That's we're talking next quarter. Are we talking middle 2019? How far out is uh, on the horizon? At this point, I'm thinking 18 to 24 months. Okay, so uh, looking at uh, 2020, uh, maybe even early 2021. Which, by the way, is unusual. Usually when you have a presidential election year, that's not when you have the recession. But um, we think that the big goose to the economy came last year with the tax bill. And so now it's the, the, the goosing is, is going to be less. Well, if you look at the, the stimulus package, consumers are still getting an extra $60 billion of a boost next year as they get their tax returns in the early part of the year. So fiscal stimulus isn't over quite yet. But as we reach 2020, you know, that stimulus will largely have played out at that point. And you also were already hearing a lot of discussion about the budget deficit being too big, even from President Trump. Right. So... Well, we're running, uh, you know, uh, not quite a trillion dollar deficit at this point, but um, that's outside of a recession. That's almost unheard of to have a deficit this big. Um, so maybe the uh, financial latitude of the U.S. government is going to be a little bit hum- hamstrung over the next couple of years. It's a challenge over the next couple of years, and it'll be a real challenge in the next recession. Well, the good news is that the Clearbridge Recession Risk Dashboard right now is still solidly flashing green, but we only look out a year ahead for that. But um, I think as you're right, Mike, as we move closer to 2020, fis- the fiscal stimulus starts to fade. Um, you could start to see some cracks in the foundation of the economy. Um, well, Mike, I-, I really appreciate you joining me here in the booth today. Uh, I hope the listeners were able to grab a couple of nuggets and um, you know, were able to uh, realize that as you move later in the economic cycle, you want to have that equity exposure, but you really want to know what you own. You don't want to just blindly buy the markets or growth stocks. You, quality is a, is a feature that they want to start to sniff out with the companies that they own. Um, but I thank everybody for, uh, for listening and dialing into the latest ClearBridge podcast. Uh, we hope that you have a, a great holiday season and a happy new year. And we look forward to having you back on the next ClearBridge podcast. Thank you. Please note the following. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. The opinions and views expressed in today's podcast are the individual speakers as of November 29th, 2018, and may differ from other managers or the firm as a whole, and are not intended to be a forecast of future events, a guarantee of future results, or investment advice. Any statistics referenced have been obtained from sources believed to be reliable, but the accuracy and completeness of this information cannot be guaranteed. Neither ClearBridge Investments nor its information providers are responsible for any damages or losses arising from any use of this information.